Amen. That confession is true in our hearts as it's been planted and cultivated by the Spirit of God. And so, I would invite you to turn to the Word of God in Ruth chapter 4. We worship the Lord God by reading His Word, by meditating on His Word, living by His Word. And so we'll do that this morning in Ruth chapter 4. In Ruth chapter 4 and verse 13, this is the reading of the word of the Lord. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. You can be seated, and the children can be dismissed to Children's Church. Today, we'll finish up our study of the book of Ruth. If you remember back when we started, we discussed Romans 15, verse 4, where the Spirit leads Paul to say, everything written in the Old Testament is written for our learning, so that through endurance and encouragement, the Scripture might give us full hope. Everything in the Old Testament is written for our learning. Encouragement and endurance. Endurance implies difficulty. Things that are hard will happen. Encouragement implies circumstances that call us to be confident. So the question is, has Ruth equipped the people of God for endurance and encouragement? The title for the sermon is Redemption Accomplished or Redemption Realized. Redemption has been a theme of chapter 3 and 4. It's a theme of the book of Ruth. We saw in chapter 3 redemption's plan. Would you look with me? I want to set some context as we finish the book. Ruth chapter 3 verse 1. Naomi, the mother-in-law, says to Ruth, my daughter... Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Look down to verse 5. That's the plan. Naomi says, here's what we're going to do. Look down to verse number 5. And Ruth replied back to her mother-in-law, all that you say I will do. We saw last week redemption's transaction. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Ruth chapter 4, verse 4. So I thought I would tell you this, by the field in the presence of those sitting here, 
and in the presence of the elders of the people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, then let me, uh, if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it. And I come next. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you shall also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, a widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Look at verse 11 in chapter 4. Then all the people who were gathered at the gates and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Tamar bore to Judah because the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And then we see here today redemption realized, fulfilled, accomplished. And I think the theme for that in verse 4 is in verse 14. Then the women who witnessed the delivery of a son to Naomi and Ruth said, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. The theme of redemption, God's redemption, is set in the context of covenants. God's redemption and his covenant promises. Let me take just a minute and describe a few of the covenants that are good for us to keep in mind while we study Ruth chapter 4. A few of the covenants that are good for us to keep in mind. The first one we call the Adamic covenant. Not the Edenic, but the Adamic covenant. This is the covenant where God promised to Adam that he would send one who would crush the head of the serpent. That matters in Ruth chapter 4. The next one I want to talk to you about is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the promise that God would, through Abraham, give a lineage of people whose existence on the earth would become a blessing to every people group. And then we will talk later this morning about the Davidic covenant. God promises to King David a descendant who will reign on the throne forever without end. These are just three of the covenants that frame our understanding about God providing redemption. In that covenant realized, covenant accomplished, we're going to talk about two things. We'll just just frame our thought in two parts. The first part is the covenant consummated, a child is born. And the second part is the covenant continued. As we walk our way through the close of Ruth, there is going to be three different realizations. There is going to be the realization of Ruth and Boaz. God has provided us a redeemer, a baby, Obed. The word means servant. And we will read the account of joy and delight as Ruth and Naomi realize the son is the provision of God to take care of them, to meet their needs. But the author, the narrator of Ruth, knows more than Ruth and Naomi know. That's obvious, because twice he ends thoughts with the same word, David and David. 
Remember the setting for the book of Ruth? It's set right after the book of Judges. And the end of the book of Judges said, and in this time, everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. There was calamity and rebellion and chaos in the land. And the author of the book, the writer, ends this one with the word David, a king after God's own heart who will rule his people. And so the narrator realizes something that Ruth and Naomi didn't realize. But there's more. You and I sit in this room and hold the Bible and we read the word David and we say to the human author, oh, there's more still. And that's where the book of Ruth will end for us. Let's start here in verse 13. Covenant consummation. The Bible simply says in verse 13, Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. There are at least nine months that this one verse telescopes of personal history. Boaz married Ruth. She became his wife. This stranger, this Moabite woman, is no longer a stranger and a foreigner. She is now a part of the people of God through marriage. The Lord gave Ruth conception, the Bible says. The fact that the Lord gave conception must have been seen against the backdrop of Ruth's previous experience. Ruth had been married to a man named Malon. And she'd been married to him for 10 years in the land of Moab. And they had no children. And here in one verse, Boaz and Ruth marry, and then they have a son. Wow. Truly, God did that. As they observed the delivery of this son, they knew that God had done this. Now, This child being born is the answer to the prayer that we read in verse 11 and 12. The women say, oh, might the Lord build the house of Israel through children who come to Boaz and to Ruth. And then the Bible says simply in verse 13, God gave gave Ruth a son. Verse 13 represents the realization of hope held by three people living piously in concert with a God who was providential and accomplishing his purposes. And verse 13 says it all. They had need, they lived with faithfulness, they lived with piety, and God blessed, God provided. The surprise at this point in verse 14 is that the emphasis shifts. Ruth has just had a son. And that is notable. But verse 14 doesn't go on talking about Ruth and her son. Instead, verse 14 talks about Naomi and her grandson. And all the grandmothers in the room go, well, of course, that's the way it should be. Everyone knows grandma is the most important figure in a grandchild's life. So here the shift to attention on Naomi and thankfulness for Naomi sounds like this. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. Now, I just want to say, I think the his is the baby who would grow up and be well known as the provision of God to Naomi and Ruth. But the Lord is blessed and thanked. This is redemption indeed. Redemption. I just say a word about what redemption means. 
Redemption transforms by renewing life and giving hope for a future. When Naomi came back to Bethlehem, she felt no hope for a future. She said, why do you even call me Naomi? Look, I'm empty. I have nothing. I have nothing, including hope. But through the Lord's kindness in providing her with a redeemer, her life was renewed. The child in her lap gave her hope for a future. May his name be renowned in Israel. The the fact that they link the name of the child with the place literally communicates to us, may his reputation, his existence, his lineage outlive the very nation. Linked to the people, which is significant. Keep his name alive as long as the people exist. Verse 15, the woman recognizes the significance of this for Naomi. And the women do three extraordinary things. First, they say, he will be to you a restorer of life. Stark contrast from the bitterness she felt when she came home a widower or a widow. Second, they say, may this young man be a nourisher of your old age. Literally, literally, it says, may this young man sustain you in your gray hairs. That's vivid. Number three, the last statement is the most remarkable of all. What they say about Ruth. The daughter-in-law who loves you is better than seven sons. Seven sons. In culture, in this Hebrew culture, the ideal family was a family of seven boys. There's probably a couple reasons for that. I don't think it's because having seven boys in your house all at once is ideal. Bruce? (laughs) Before I even said anything, I looked over and he was shaking his head like this. There's a really high uh, fatality rate among uh, children. But if you could have seven, you were really blessed because certainly some would survive. And boys, they pass on the family name. And the women rightly say, no, this loving, pious, virtuous daughter-in-law who loves you she outweighs the blessing of seven sons. What a great testament to how God had provided for Naomi by the hand of Ruth and now a grandson. Verse 16, Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. She took the child, she places the child on her lap, and became a sort of a nanny, a guardian, a grandmother. This is this whole interaction between Naomi holding the baby and the women of the neighborhood 
expressing truth is so profound. It's the only place in the Bible where the ladies come together to name a child. It's also significant that they say twice, and then the women named, and then the women named. It's redundant. The declaration, a son has been born. And they say the son is born to Naomi. God had provided a son. Not just a child, but the right child. The name that the women give the boy is the name Obed, meaning to serve. Now, verse 13 through verse 17 is a story about a woman who had a baby that her friends were excited for. That's not a new story, right? And you read that and think, uh, isn't that like every time a baby is born, women get excited? I don't understand why that story needs to be given our attention in this moment. Why does this one consummation, why does this one birth announcement, why does this one son matter in all of history, and more importantly, redemptive history? To the needy, a child was born who would be a servant. That's exactly who we are, needy. And this is exactly who Jesus is, a servant. Mark 10, 45 says, he was the servant of the Lord who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is the servant. This story is a shadow of the son who was born to us who is a servant. The story of Ruth starts with lawlessness, famine, death, hopelessness, and ends with redemption. Jesus humbled himself to death on the cross for our need. Let me, let me paint a picture contrary to this narrative. Ruth and Boaz are married, and Ruth has a son. And the midwife comes racing out of the room and tells Naomi, the daughter-in-law who loves you, who's better than seven sons, has herself had a son. The Lord has been faithful to redeem you. And Naomi says, Do you know how hopeless my situation is? I'm a widow. How will I take care of myself? I don't have time to be joyful at this announcement. I have to go and scrap and fight for my survival. We would look at Naomi and go, Naomi, stop. God has just provided redemption. Don't walk out into the field and try to make things work for yourself. We would say, Naomi, that's crazy. This is God's provision. However, there are likely people in the room who hear about the servant sent from God the Father. Not to be served, but to serve. To be in our place unto death on the cross. And they say, what joy is that story to me? I have to go out and do better. Live better. Have better morality and behavior so that I won't perish. And it would be equally frustrating for any of you to leave this story feeling that way. I have to go do better. 
what joy is it for me that God has sent a servant, a perfect, spotless sacrifice to exist and to serve my need in my place. I have to go do better. That would be tragic. And so, this morning, I want you to know the joy it is to see that this account reminds us of the fact that our Savior, our servant, has been given to us by God. And like verse 14, I would say to you, blessed be the Lord. He has not left you this day without a Redeemer. But do you know him yet? Maybe not. I would pray that you would know Jesus, not just as a figure in history, but as the servant, the son, born of God's provision to save sinners like me and you. Not only do we see God's covenant, his promises, in consummation, but we see them in continuation. That's this little genealogy. Maybe you're tempted sometimes to think, why the genealogy? Well, the primary reason for genealogies is so that the people who read them in public feel awkward reading these weird names. Everyone knows the genealogies are beautiful. In fact, the study of this brief genealogy took most of my time of study this week. And I told the other pastors, I said, I got to figure out what to share and what not to share. Because the genealogy makes this whole story erupt. So, let me try to carefully figure out what to say and what not to say in the next couple moments. In verse 18 through 22, we have covenant continuity. There's a continuation of what had been done through Obed. And it leads all the way to David and beyond. The Bible simply says in verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. This same genealogy is recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, if you'd like to go read it. The genealogy here identifies 10 generations. There are 10 generations identified here in verses 18 through 22. The Matthew account of this genealogy has one really neat significance. The Matthew account, Matthew 1, simply says, and so and so begat so and so and so and so begat so and so and so and so. But then there's two moments of interruption. And so and so and his wife. And so and so and his wife. And there's two women listed in the genealogy in Matthew 1. Do you know who they are? You maybe do. The first one is Tamar. Remember last week? Tamar has to employ creative methods to fulfill the leverate vow. And she becomes the mother of Perez, who would be the one through who Judah... His line would perpetuate all the way to David. Tamar is one of them. The other one is Rahab. Yes, that Rahab. The harlot in Jericho. Rahab, the one who trusted in God and believed and was spared. Rahab becomes the mother of Boaz. And her name is listed there. Along with... Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, that's the father-in-law of Aaron, Moses and Aaron. Nashon, that's the brother-in-law of Aaron. Salmon, the husband of Rahab from Jericho. 
who then has a child named Boaz, Boaz, who then has a child named Obed, Jesse, and David. Now, the author doesn't begin with Judah, the namesake of the tribe. The author begins with Perez. And I wonder why that might be. But I think it's possible and significant for us right now that maybe the author is saying God's provision doesn't require biological perpetuation. But look at this unusual family. Bruce stood here and described unusual family. And God often works his purposes through atypical family dynamics. And I would encourage you to keep that in mind. This leads ultimately to David. Meaning beloved. It's a royal title. David is without doubt one of the most important characters in all the Old Testament. He's the first legitimate king of the nation Israel from God's perspective. He preoccupies the authors of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. All the messianic hopes of Israel are grounded in David and culminate in the Davidic covenant. I'm going to read, for sake of time, I can't ask you to go there and read the whole thing, so I'm just going to read from it, 2 Samuel chapter 7. God makes promise to David, and this is what he says. The Lord came to Nathan and said, Go, tell my servant David, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the days when I was brought with the people out of Egypt. But I've been moved from place to place in a tent dwelling. I've not said to any of them, why don't you build me a house of cedar? I've never made that request. Now, say this to David. I don't need you to build me a house. I took you from the pasture following after sheep. I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. The Lord declared to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and your throne and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all the vision, Nathan spoke this to David. King David was thrilled to hear that God's covenant promise was that one of his descendants would sit forever on a throne and rule. Now, biblical narrators would say, yes, Solomon, but then Solomon died. And the biblical student today would look at the Davidic covenant and go, ah, the one who builds a house for me is building a spiritual house, a spiritual temple made of Christians, and he will rule and govern and lead them without end. And so the author gives this genealogy and concludes it with David. David represents key to Old Testament history. He is of the genealogy of Perez, of Judah. 
the role of David as the founder of the royal lineage is reflected not just in Bible genealogies, but reflected in how often Jesus is called the son of David. Throughout the book, as we've spent time here, we have seen the narrator do really wonderful work to deliberately cast these characters as stellar models of hesed. Hesed is the Hebrew word meaning loving kindness. The narrator has shared for us accounts of their hesed and deep devotion to God and to each other. And in that, has woven together the markings of the providential hand of God, rewarding those characters who are pious and seeking after him. This book and these genealogies demonstrate to us that in the darkest days of the book of Judges, the chosen line is preserved. Not by heroic exploits, soldiers, governors, kings. But the providence is delivered by the hand of God who rewards people beyond imagination. You know that passage in Ephesians that says our Lord does abundantly above that which we could ask or think? Don't you marvel at that statement? Don't you also find it to be true? The Lord does more than we could have imagined him to do. That's what happens here. That's what happens here. Let me explain. Zoom way in with me to Ruth 4. Ruth and Naomi. We're not going to live. I don't see how we survive our circumstances. Dad has died. Husband has died. We have come home with nothing. I don't know how we're going to make it. And then, with our nose right up against the pages, we see the name Obed. And Ruth and Naomi rejoice and say, God has done! Certainly he had. And the narrator, the narrator says, let's not end with the word Obed. Let's add a sentence in verse 17. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And the narrator says, he has done! And then adds a genealogy. But Ruth and Naomi and Boaz couldn't have imagined what God did. We zoom out and we see the book of Ruth operating in this wonderful concert in the whole canon of Scripture magnifying what we called several weeks ago the meta-narrative. God's covenant faithfulness to magnify Christ as the redeemer of sinners for his eternal glory. And we say, he has done above that which we could ask or think. The genealogy of Matthew 1 reveals to us that there was one greater than David who comes through this line. 
And not only from the dark days of the book of Judges, but from the dark days of the fall in the Garden of Eden, God was producing his salvation, his Messiah, redeeming the lost and the hopeless to salvation. Listen just quickly to what was said in Genesis 49 of the tribe of Judah. Judah, Perez, Skip, Boaz, Obed, David, Jesus. Listen to what Genesis 49 says. Judah, your brothers are going to praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. The scepter of rule shall not depart from you nor the ruling staff from between your feet. Judah, this is what's coming. And again, the narrator could not have imagined what that meant. So, redemption. Redeeming. The theme of Ruth. 85 short verses. Ruth. 85 verses. And 23 references to redemption. So, we've studied the life of a woman and her mother-in-law and a landowner and people who got together at the city gate in Bethlehem. And what does it mean to us? Well, you remember when I said Romans 15.4? All the things written in the Old Testament are written for us. They're written for our endurance and encouragement. And so I wonder pastorally if you could say, thank you, Lord, for magnifying your providence in the life of Ruth, because I know that you who has promised is always faithful. Do you have endurance seeing God's provident faithfulness to Ruth? Will you endure? Keeping in mind that endurance implies difficulty. Will you be encouraged? God's revelation is not to us for our survival, but for our delight. It's for our joy. I wonder, friend, do you see the provident faithfulness of God to what otherwise history would call insignificant characters and delight that that's your God and that's your expectation of his faithfulness? Hebrews chapter 12. An introduction to what we call the faithful or the hall of faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud or this testimony of witness, let us put aside the weight and the sin which clings so closely to us and slows us. And let us run with patience the race set before us, looking then to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That application. Seeing the testimony of Ruth. Let's move forward, racing ahead in our worship, in our joy in our transformation to Christ. Let's move forward joyfully as we look to Jesus. Ruth operates looking forward to 
Jesus. Redemption. Because it is Christ who is the founder and the perfecter of faith. And having accomplished our redemption is seated at God's right hand. Let's pray. Lord, Father, this narrative, this story of Ruth is a blessing to your people. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us the clarity of your word by your spirit who teaches us all things. Causing your people to accord to godliness and obedience. And as we've seen here, the expectation that your providence works everything according to the counsel of your will for your glory and for the good of your people. So as we study this book of Ruth, guard us from being more informed of things that have happened and more transformed to what it means to walk by faith. What it means to live in the covenant providence of the God of heaven and earth. So I pray that each one of us would be shaped according to your will in our joy, in our redemption. Lord, I pray for folks who are here who might totally miss the delight of the birth announcement. Unto us, a Savior has been born. Who would come not to be served, but to serve. And yet, right now, as we sit in the stillness of this moment, there are people who might think, what good is that to me? I have to go out and do better so that I might be approved in the end by the righteous judge. Lord, cause them to look to Christ and to believe, to trust, to delight, and to rest in his completed work. So, God, we're thankful that you've provided for us this study, this truth of your covenant-keeping providence and faithfulness, and this wonderful illustration of how you have worked redemption graciously and lovingly. In Christ Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen.